This is an ABC podcast. Over 150 years ago, out in the rocky fields of South Australia and Victoria, craftsmen with names like Levi Meeks and Patrick O'Grady picked up stones. Painstakingly, whatever the weather, they fitted these stones into walls. They were making complex jigsaw puzzles, really, without mortar or machines. And over time, these dry stone walls began to snake through farms and around paddocks. One, known as the Camel Hump, stretches 65 kilometres. Another was built by the whole town of Mount Gambia. When Bruce Monday, then a young physics graduate, decided to become a farmer in South Australia, he didn't pay much attention to these old walls. But that's certainly changed. Bruce has now travelled around the country to find out the stories behind these walls and the people who made them, putting them together in a book called These Dry Stone Walls. I spoke to Bruce in 2016. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. Do you remember growing up around stone walls? Well, I do. Um, I grew up in Geelong and we had a lot of friends in what you loosely call the Western Districts. And driving out through that area, you went through what is known as the Stony Rises. And there are all these marvellous walls built of stone. And one couldn't help but, even as a child, but to be struck by these walls. But also there was a mythology around them, which really grabbed me at the time, was that they were built by convicts. And this is what I grew up with for probably 65 years. It's a very widespread idea, I think, that the walls were built by convicts. It is indeed. In fact, (laughs) it's ironic that even in South Australia, some people think the walls in South Australia were built by convicts, uh, which horrifies the real South Australians, of course. Uh, That was what I always understood. There was convicts out there, and it just seemed to fit the picture. And who did build them then, if it wasn't convicts? Well, walling was actually a craft, and the the original pastoral runs that the squatters established, they were built almost around little villages because they had to be self-sufficient. They couldn't sort of duck down to Woolies to grab their bag of muesli or something like that. They had to grow a lot of their own material, so they had all the normal skills, such as uh, a cobbler to make shoes, etc., a saddler for obvious reasons, blacksmith, and in many cases they would have a waller, someone who could build a wall out of stone. That was an acknowledged craft. It wasn't just piling rocks on top of each other. It was a craft to actually build a stone wall. And these people came out from the home countries, which in the case of the Western District were predominantly Scotland, but also Ireland, and they brought with them those skills. So you weren't originally from South Australia. What took you there? Why did you move there? Uh, well, it sounds um, it's a bit, a bit of a put-on, but the stone was part of the attraction. Uh, I've always admired the stone architecture in South Australia. It was something I always quite loved. What about it, Bruce? What did you uh, like? The colour of the stone uh, and also the simple but quite elegant architecture. It's often Adelaide, of course, is often referred to as the City of Churches, which I think is quite a misnomer. It has a lot of churches and they are built of stone, but they have a lot of other very wonderful, but quite simple buildings built of stone. And what sort of colour? Because, of course, stone is a material that can really vary. And it varies a lot through South Australia. So, for example, over the West Coast, it's limestone, which is predominantly, I guess, a whitish colour. Uh, Mount Gambier is very whitish. 
the Adelaide Hills, it's quite, well, it's referred to as a bluestone, but it's a mix of colours, you know, reds and oranges and so forth. And up through the mid-north, it's almost red, you know, quite strikingly so. And I always found that very appealing and a real statement of South Australia. And yet, ironically, when we moved there in the 1970s, pulling down the old buildings was all the rage. You know, that's what everyone wanted to do. And we bought an old stone farmhouse, that was, which we thought was absolutely wonderfully romantic. And after a few years of living with salt damp and so forth, we began to understand why people pulled them down. <laughs> the, the farm that you bought had stones on it. What has that meant for the kind of farming you can do on this well, land? Well, it had, it had a lot of stones, rock, um, but it also had a lot of uh, arable land as well. But it had a stone wall along the boundary, the property boundary. And I sort of admired it, but in a very uninformed way. It looked, it was the history of it, which I didn't understand, which I thought was very important. And then when my neighbour, who had the, the next property on, and the stone wall ran through into his property, one day he was pushing it down with his front end loader. And I said, Graham, why are you pushing that thing down? And he looked at me as if to say, well, surely the answer is self-evident, it's old. Uh, and I, I suppose that really sort of fired me up a little bit to think, well, just because it's old, but it was still very functional and very beautiful, just because it's old is not really enough of a reason to push it down. So one of those things that then prompted me to try and find out more about stone walls. So you already appreciated the the beauty, the aesthetics, I guess, of a, a good stone wall. Yeah, I did. Uh, I didn't understand it. You know, I didn't... Uh, and I had tried to repair sections of wall, and inevitably, where I repaired it, it looked quite different to the original wall, to, you know, the pristine part of the wall. And I could never quite understand why I couldn't reproduce what was there because it really just looked like rocks piled up. But I realised quickly that it was far more than that. I always had rocks left over and things like that. It was a bit like me working on the car. There were always parts left over. <laughs> I could never quite work out how do you get all these things backing together again. <laughs> What's the definition of a dry stone wall? What makes a wall fit into that category? Yeah, dry stone means it has been built without mortar. So you're really just relying on gravity and friction. There are a lot of old ruins which appear to be dry stone but were probably built with mud as a mortar. But the mud would have been made from you know, the soil which came from the same period, material as the stone. So it was exactly the same colour as the stone. With the passage of time, that mud has weathered away and you're left with a structure which is essentially dry stone. So even though it wasn't originally built dry stone, it finished up dry stone. There are some wonderful examples of that, you know, old barns, cottages and so forth, which are dry stone, and it is a measure of the quality of the building that they are still standing. Yeah, not entirely intact, of course, but still there is very recognisable relics of something grander. And why on earth not use a mortar? I mean, when they're building these uh, walls, it's hard work. Why not use mud or, yeah, or another sure. mortar? Uh, well, I guess it was... A, and this is, again, one of the great appeals of dry stone walls for me. It's a matter of using what you've got and no more. And, of course, stones were probably the first building material that man used when he, I use that term generically, uh, first came out of the cave. You know, what are we going to build with? Stone. All those lovely old villages that we love to visit in Europe and so forth, uh, stone buildings, part of the charm is that they're talking back to us with that, the language of the materials which are available when these dwellings or walls or whatever they are were built with. And so when you had to build a fence, you used what you had. And in South Australia, they had a lot of stone, not a lot of timber. 
Stone had many other virtues, of course. It was fireproof, it was white ant proof, and it was also part of clearing the paddocks. And so how old are, are the walls that are left? Well, they vary, of course, but um, the earlier ones probably go back to the 1860s. That was when they got serious about fences with dry stone because that was followed on from the gold rush when you know, so many of the shepherds who had contained the animals previously, the shepherds went off to Ballarat and Bendigo and so forth and the copper mines also in South Australia. So the pastoralists were then under some pressure to start fencing their properties or their runs and they used the stone. So that was about the 1860s that you know, they started doing it large scale. Eventually, of course, it became cheaper to build a sort of conventional post and wire fence that we have now. But that wasn't until the 1980s, really, that farmers could actually that buy late. wire. And then, Bruce, a neighbour of yours shared his family journals, written by Joseph Keynes, who came out from England in the 1840s. What did Joseph Keynes write about the dry stone walls on his property? Keynes himself never built a wall, but he was employing wallers. And he was quite a student of the wallers' techniques. He wanted he watched them, see how they were building them, and he would put in his journal, um, not so sure about the walls that Newman is building, and he would describe why he had his concerns compared with the walls that Tallick is building or the walls that Meekins is building and so forth. And he would talk to his neighbours about this, uh, Melrose and McBean and uh, Murray, and they all exchanged notes on these sort of things and who was best and to get and so forth and what were the techniques to look for. And in the end, he came down to Levi Meekins, who you mentioned earlier on, and he would describe the great qualities in his workmanship. They usually worked in teams of four, two adults and two kids. And two kids? Two children. Like yeah, what right. sort of age? You know. Oh, quite young. Meekins himself was apprenticed to his dad at the age of nine, so that gives you a bit of an indication. But one of the other things that Meekins was very good at was keeping a team together because it's pretty tough work out there. And he said, you know, Meekins is a very good team man, whereas a couple of the others, you know, the, the rate of turnover, the turnover was pretty rapid and that was disconcerting. It took a longer to build the wall and so forth, whereas he knew with absolute confidence that if Meekins said he was going to build this wall by such and such a date, it would happen. We all Just dream to... of builders like that. That's Bruce. right. <laughs> what, what kind of conditions were these teams <coughs> having to work in? Well, they would normally go out on the Monday morning, come back on the Saturday night, work six days, and they were sent out with their rations and rations for their horses, often have two or three horses, and a sled. They used to carry the stone up to the wall on a sled. They probably had other simple rations, you know, like side of mutton or something like that, and tea and coffee and flour. But it wouldn't be uh, very grand, I'm quite sure. And I do remember there's one entry in Kane's journal where he notes, this was in August, August, of course, is midwinter, and he said, rode out to the Wallers today, very, very bitter out there. Mm. <laughs> and in contrast, another note in February, midsummer, rode out to the Wallers today. They're complaining that the stones are too hot to handle. <laughs> I don't know whether he gave them gloves or not. But, yes. You know, it was, would have been very forbidding out there. And would have the four members of that team had sort of distinct jobs or are you all working just on different well, patches? mainly the children, uh, it varied quite a lot with the walls and the style of wall being built, but generally the children would cart the stone. They'd go and fetch it, pick up the stone, put it on the sled, bring it back and the two old guys would build it. It's very difficult to find out 
all the detail of that. Most of what we know is really built on what we know about the walls which were built in England, because that's where they came from, and we assume they brought you know, all those skills with them pretty much intact. But it did vary. There's uh, some interesting walls up through the mid-north of South Australia, which are built on what's known as the Galloway style, and it almost looks like an upside-down wall. The stones on the bottom are much smaller than the stones on the top. And, you know, logically you'd think, well, we put the big stones down the bottom, you know, they form the foundation, you put the ever-decreasing uh, size of stones as you go up. But these ones up near uh, Bundalia Forest are quite different, and they're built with these small stones down the bottom, which apparently the children would put down. So the idea was, you know, the children could put down these stones because they don't have to lift them, and then the men would lift the big stones up and put them on top. Leith Cooper, who's a farmer up at Jamestown, he showed me this wall and he said, I've seen this in Scotland. And that prompted me to have a look at that and find out it was in fact called the Galloway style, which is used in some parts of Scotland, made its way across the Irish Sea to Ireland. And it's been widely used there. It's not Galway, but Galloway. It's a very common style. Was it always done by professionals, Bruce, or would there have been an element of DIY among the squatters and well, farmers? Well, uh, probably there, there would have been, uh, I'm sure. But I suspect, um, and I'm pretty confident, that the ones that have endured the best walls uh, were built by pros. And George Melrose, who settled, uh, he was a neighbour of Keynes, he settled, his property was called Rosebank, he settled that in the same period, the 1840s, and he noted in his letters that not one man in a hundred can build a good stone wall. And I'm sure he's right. I've seen a lot of people try. You didn't just keep this at the level of theory, though. You started building your own walls. Who taught you how to build? Well, largely self-taught, really. I had the stone, and I just have this great need to do things with it. You know, So we've done lots of paving and then walling. Because and it was over. needed to get it off the ground, or because no, you just loved no, working with it? just a need to find a use for it, you know, that sort of thing. I also like wood turning and so forth, so I like using stuff which is there. So I built like quite a lot of stone stuff and then once you do that, you become a little bit critical of what you see. When you see what other people have done, you think, oh, gee whiz, I could have done a bit better. So I went through, I suppose, a slow evolution, getting a little bit more interested, a little bit better at it and so forth. But then when the Stone Walls book came along and I saw just how good some stone walls are, I thought, gee whiz, I wouldn't mind doing that. Looks reasonably straightforward. And so I built a wall at the end of our driveway. It was actually, I was was clearing a paddock and I had a whole lot of stone. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do with it? I know, I'll build a stone wall. And it's all right. When I first built it, I thought it was brilliant. But... (laughs) Subsequently, I thought, yeah, it's all right. And now I know it's bloody awful, really. Why? What's what's wrong with your first wall? Uh, it's more a case it could have been so much better. you know. So that's really what it comes down to. And I built, after that one at the end of the driveway, which was probably 15 years ago, I then built another one, which was much better. And... admittedly they're all friends but people tend to admire it a bit you know they say nice things to me about it and don't say much about the one at the end of the driveway (laughs) and so everything is relative and then I've gone on and built some others and some retaining walls and I do feel I'm getting better all the time but I've learned a lot from the workshops that I have been running in South Australia now when I say running I'm not the instructor I wouldn't pretend for a moment to be able to teach other people how to do it properly anyway but I 
organise these workshops. And this came from the book launch. Angus McLaughlin um, very generously hosted the book launch on his wonderful property, Rosebank, and he had there a stone structure, which is known as a cross. I won't bore you with the detail of that now. But he mentioned after the book launch, he said, oh, I wouldn't mind getting that thing fixed up. And I said, well, how about if we had a workshop? You know, we could sort of teach people how to build a stone wall and you finish up with that thing fixed. And he thought, that sounds like an idea. And I said, there's also a stone wall out in one of your paddocks, which we could repair, at least a section of it. You know, it had been there for a long time. Trees had fallen over it and had been damaged. I said, yeah, we could repair a section of that. So Gus said, yeah, that'd be good. So I ran a workshop. Uh, I knew a guy, Wally Carline, who is a master waller. He came out from Derbyshire. He was living in South Australia. And I'd seen some of the walls he had built, and they're absolutely wonderful. I said to Wally, would you be interested in running a workshop? In doing that, I was conscious of the fact, you know, good footballers don't necessarily make good football coaches. And I thought, you know, just because Wally's a great waller doesn't mean to say be a good teacher. Well, he was brilliant. And so he and his partner, Val, came down and ran this workshop for a weekend for a dozen people who had asked me, you know, does anyone show you how to build these things? So they came along to the workshop, and it was terrific. They enjoyed themselves. Uh, a nice piece of wall was built, etc. And, Bruce, what about when you're actually picking up, if you're making a wall out of um, stones that are just there available on, on your land, and you hold a stone in your hand, and you've got another one in the other hand, what makes you choose one over the other? Well, they've both got a place in the wall. And if you look at, if you watch a good waller, they never pick the same stone up twice. You know, they pick a stone up and they'll put it in there. And they'll come back and perhaps fill a void later on. Uh, and that's what they've simply got to do to keep up the pace. Whereas the amateurs, they pick a stone up, they turn it around, they put it down, pick up another one, and they revisit stones many, many times. And I'm like that, I must admit. I'm getting better, but I'm still not perfect. But I guess my situation now is really do I go out in the paddock on the tractor and not come back with some stone. You know, if I've got the bucket on the tractor, you can be sure it'll come back with a bucket load of stone or the carryall or something like that. And you just have your eye open for it. You know, it's a bit like wood turning. You know, every time I go past a tree, I'm always looking for a nice piece of wood because <laughs> you look, you know, something's going to have a bit of character. What sort something. of stone speaks to you when you're on your tractor? Uh, it's nice to see something which is flat. But you see, I mentioned before, the best stone is quarried stone, and so most of what I pick up is what's called field stones, just lying on the surface. It tends to be weathered, it gets rounded corners and so forth, and it's not so nice to work with, but it can often be split. And I always have a crowbar with me, and often when you crowbar up a stone, you find another one, and so forth. You, get, you develop a knack. <laughs> Tell me um, about some of the characters you learnt about, some of those early wallers who were building the first walls back 150 or yeah. so years ago. Well, I mentioned Levi Meekins, um, and he built some wonderful walls. He went on to become a bounty rider on Rosebank. Rosebank was about 70,000 acres back in those days, and that's the size of many of those runs. Uh, and then he became the overseer at Rosebank. His son Jimmy became the overseer after him, and together they worked 70 years on Rosebank. 70 consecutive years. And Gus McLaughlin mentioned to me when he took over the property in, 19, in the 1970s, early 70s, he said, the great mistake I made, I did never spent enough time sitting down talking to Jimmy Meekins because he had so much knowledge and history in his mind. You know, the old proverb, you know, when an, when an elder dies, a library is burnt down. Those old folk, you know, they had such wonderful stories to tell. There was Levi Cooper, another Levi, 
who was a stonemason at Robe in South Australia, a lovely beach town. Levi, I think, came out from Cornwall. He was a quarryman, and he built some fantastic walls down there. But Levi, the sad thing about Levi was that he was in love with the girl, and I forget her name, and I shouldn't, uh, the girl who, was in, who married Adam Lindsay Gordon. So as a young strapper, he was in love with uh, this young lady who, for some reason that I've never really fathomed, fancied life with a jockey politician poet rather than a stonemason. <laughs> and off she went uh, with Adam Lindsay Gordon, who himself didn't live long. Levi lived to about 90, and the story goes, I've heard quite a few versions of this story, the story goes that every night he would go to the Caledonian Inn and he would sit there in a corner on his own and drink a pint lamenting a love lost. I know, and he wow. lived to the age of 90. You All those pints. A, a lot of pints. <laughs> a lot of lamenting to do. What's the camel's hump, Bruce? Uh, the camel's hump, yeah, that's uh, an extraordinary wall that runs runs from a little town called Farrell, near a little town called Farrell Flat, up to beyond another little town called Bubarawi. Runs sort of more or less south to north. And it ran through a property called Hill River Station, which at one stage was the biggest pastoral run in South Australia. It was owned by C.B. Fisher, after whom the C.B. Fisher Plate name. That's the race, the horse race, held at Mooney Valley. And C.B. Fisher was a... Very interesting grazier himself, very successful, very enterprising, and he was very quick to realise he needed to, needed to have fences. And so when we went out to look at this fence, we were, were taken out by a current custodian, Gerald Lally, who uh, owns the property next door to uh, adjoining this fence. He took us out there to the start of it, and he said, this is a monumental place to stand and see where this stone wall starts. You know, just a picture in the 1860s, C.B. Fisher standing there with his wallers saying, you're going to start here and you're going to finish up at Old Kanawi, which is 67 kilometres further on. And you know, they used to build a chain a day. And a huge, really mountainous. It's up and down, you know, it's uphill, down dale and so forth. And this is what you're going to do. And just trying to think, you know, what was going through the minds of him and those people, Patrick O'Grady, who you mentioned, and others, of course, uh, when they're confronted with a task how, like that. How long? The way they went. <laughs> how long did it take them? And it wasn't all built by one team, and they, they probably, you know, all built sections of it and possibly uh, working t together from both ends. But the usual, the going rate was about a chain a day, a chain is length of a cricket pitch, about 20 metres. So there was 80 chains in a mile. So it took the best part of three months to build one mile of stone wall. That's assuming the stone is there. You don't have to go and fetch it for, for miles. And the wall is usually about four foot high. And why did the town of Mount Gambia build a wall? Oh, that was a, that was a, a bit of a weird one, really. It's a retaining wall near the Blue Lake. And it was built immediately after the First World War, almost as a celebration of the First World War, to recognise one great achievement with another. And what makes it interesting is that about a third of the population of Mount Gambia was away fighting the war. 
I think a third of the, uh, I might get the numbers a little bit wrong here, but let's say a third of the male population. Now, another third were probably kids, so there weren't a great number of men left. Anyway, they built this great big wall. I can't remember the dimensions, but they built this great big thing in one day. So and it was the a whole, whole town, community, whole, the whole town, town came it. together and did it. And of course, typically of those days, the women made the scones and the tea and you know, kept the blokes fed. And they put all these stones together and built this great big retaining wall, which is still there, of course. I think about your neighbour back in 1976 who used his front end loader to knock over a stone yeah, wall. No. Do you think farmers have got a better oh, appreciation absolutely. now? Yeah, they have. Uh, the farmers, th- th- this was one of the things that really struck me. They, they are attached to their walls, don't mean that literally. They value them, they see the heritage value in them, but they are also a challenge for the farmers because many of the walls which run through paddocks are a great inconvenience. You know, machinery is getting bigger, particularly if it's on arable land. Machinery is getting bigger, paddocks are getting bigger and so forth, and to have a stone wall running through the middle of it is just unworkable. And so I fully understand why they need to get rid of some of them. I would like to think that, you know, these walls could be prioritised and boundary walls, for example, can be maintained because they're not in the road. But... It's an expensive business. You know, back in the days when they were building these things, they were paid a pound a chain, uh, five shillings a rod. Uh, I'm using language you don't understand, Sarah, but... Uh, <laughs> Not much is what I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They weren't paid much. Um, but, you know, so labour was very cheap and the material was free. Whereas nowadays, to build stone walls, the stone is very expensive and the labour is very expensive. So it's just impractical to do it now. So to expect farmers to look after these walls, which we think have heritage value, is a big ask, and I think they need assistance. You know, if, we, if the wider community sees the heritage value in these walls, then we should be prepared to support them by one means or another. There needs to be some discussion around how that might happen, and farmers would be only too willing, but they do need some support. Possibly the support comes in the form of labour, you know, from people who want to help restore an old wall. Thanks so much for being my guest on Conversations today. Thank you for being such a patient listener, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, it's Elizabeth Coolass here. If you're looking for another ABC podcast filled with fantastic true stories, I'd love it if you'd try listening to mine. It's called Days Like These. You will find laughs, you will find danger, heartbreak, triumph, love, all the good stuff. These are real Australian stories and everyone comes with a little twist. Just search for Days Like These in your favourite podcast app.